Sarah, our sponsor Vionic is back today with their Vionic Vitals collection. These shoes are the most essential styles for everyday wear to get us ready for spring, which will be here before we know it. We've already talked about my Uptown Loafers and Willa Slip On Flat and your Chardonnay Heeled Sandal, but this collection also includes the Walk 23 Classic Sneaker. That is that unapologetic dad sneaker style that's so popular right now. And I was just thinking having all four styles would basically be like having a spring capsule wardrobe for your feet. Oh my gosh, that is actually such a genius idea, Megan. I love where you're going with this. You know, high quality shoes are such a classy way to elevate your wardrobe. And the styles in the Vionic Vitals collection really can be worn in your everyday mom life, whether you're running errands or dressing up for an occasion. Yeah, and let's talk about the comfort factor, Sarah. Vionic actually got started by revolutionizing medical orthotics. Today, they continue to use that science to make cute and comfortable shoes that can keep up with our active lifestyles. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's one-time use only. Vionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I am Megan Francis here with Sarah Powers. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Megan. How are you? I'm doing great and really excited to be dropping into everyone's feed today on a Friday, a little surprise right before we, I feel like really gear up for holiday mode. Well, that's right. This is the Friday before Thanksgiving week. My kids are actually off all of Thanksgiving week. So it really does feel like a pre-holiday Friday, but a busy time. Yeah, definitely. And over the years, we've talked a lot about not only feeding our kids um, in a way that we feel good about, but also our specific family's food culture. I know that we both seem to have just as much of a focus, if not more, on like the experience of eating in our home, the social experience around that, the food culture that we're creating and helping our kids become adventurous eaters, helping them witness us becoming even maybe even more adventurous eaters as we go through life. But we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about how we find that food inspiration. Like, are we getting it from the Internet or magazines or cookbooks like that has not. I don't think we've ever done a full episode just about that. That is what we're going to dive into today. And I'm really excited about it. I'm excited, too. And you're right. We often talk about the challenges of feeding a family. And if you've been listening for a long time, you know, we return to it again and again because it is a thing that keeps coming up, right? Like the children have to eat and the family has to sit down and eat dinner every night. But I'm really excited about this because I am always so inspired by how others get their recipes. Like we haven't talked about cookbooks and Pinterest and Instagram. And like, we know we have to find ways to feed the family, but like literally where do we get the ideas? And then how do we, how do we store the ideas? Like how do we organize them? There's a lot we have not tapped into. That's definitely true. And I think that, you know, food inspiration and cooking seems separate. But to yeah. me, like the more inspired I feel about food, the more likely I am to want to cook. Um, it's like I feel better about the way my kids eat when I'm varying things a little bit. And I feel better about cooking in general. So even just consuming food content, even if I don't make the recipe I look at, like I, I spend a yeah. lot of time looking at recipes. I might not make that specific recipe, but it puts me in that um, frame of mind, the kitchen hour frame of mind that I've talked about for years and years now that has just historically put me in such a better place with meal planning and just how I generally feel about being in my kitchen, putting dinner on the table or whatever meal it is. I totally agree. A lot of it is a little bit like of um, mind tricking yourself or tricking yourself into the mindset that makes you excited about getting back in the kitchen because the everydayness of it can be kind of hard, uh, especially if yeah. you as a mom are preparing a lot of the meals. It's not just dinners. It's also all of the snacks, all of the packing lunches, like the people have to eat all of the time. So <laughs> I think getting inspired by something that is just almost feels like an escape. And that might be an Instagram account. It might be a cooking show that you love. It might be great British baking competition or whatever they call it. I agree, Megan. It almost like it flips a switch for me where I don't hate going into the kitchen so much, even if I don't then go bake 
that exact thing that I just watched on TV. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And I think that should, like this passive consumption of inspiration, that aspirational stuff is can be important. Like it can be an important part of the mix because it taps into that emotional side of us that really, you know, that nurturing, cozy, like adventurous, ingredient um, oriented person who can get kind of lost in the shuffle when you're feeding your kids stuff that they're, you know, not that excited about. It's like it gets us excited about it. And then sometimes that's all we need. Right. Exactly. So I'm curious, Sarah, we're kind of coming into the end of the fall ish and then we're moving in almost to that winter seasonal changeover. I know it's a little bit different for you because your seasons look a little less dramatically different than they do like where I live. But I'm curious how much you shake things up by season or how many of those favorites come out year round? You know, when I first thought about this question, I was going to say, well, no, I live in a place that's like 65 to 75 degrees year round, et cetera. And, and my, my kids are relatively picky. So we kind of serve the same dinners year round. But after further reflection, I realized that there are a few recipes and a few sort of seasonal transitions that absolutely trigger me to get out a certain cookbook or to think about using an ingredient or think about like the smells that I want in the kitchen. And I've talked on the show before that we've really gotten pretty into our our regular farm box that gets delivered every week. So we're eating a lot more seasonally now than we have for several years. And so there's a seasonality to the way I think about cooking in the kitchen. I wouldn't say it's like, okay, now it's November 21st. I'm going to get out my holiday binder or something. And I, I think it's awesome if moms out there really have those like here's your chili recipes for the winter. And here's the things you love to grill in the summer. I don't think of it that way, but I do think of smells and spices and like a general feeling to the seasons that does work its way into my menus. Yeah. I was going to ask you how doing the farm box has maybe influenced the way that you cook around because you're right. Even in California, the produce does change. It is still seasonal. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Like you're literally eating the things that are abundant in your area at any given time because it's being, you know, brought to you. Um, but also, even if you didn't do that, even if you were shopping out of the freezer section at the grocery store, it does feel a little more on brand to eat mm-hmm. something with squash or pumpkin in it in November than it does in like May. You know, there's just there's just a difference to the way we feel. Like you look around you and you're influenced by what you see on TV, what you see in the store, like what other people are cooking, like you know, for me, like a quick bread is very much a fall winter thing. It wouldn't occur to me to make like a, like a pumpkin bread in mm-hmm. June, even though I, I could still go to the store and buy a can of pumpkin. It's like, right. it doesn't really change my ability to do it, but it changes my desire to do it. So I guess for me, it's kind of a mix. I have my, I have my staples that I'll lean on year round, but they sort of have a seasonal flair. There usually is more of a, um, an in-season vegetable which does mean in the winter I have to get creative or, or go with something that's not in season. But like whenever there are things in season in Michigan, you will see that reflected up in the bounty upon my table. Uh And then when it's not, then it looks, it starts to look a little bland. Like that's when it's just like a lot of, I feel like starches, it's a lot of carrots and tubers and things like that. But that's kind of a fun, that's a fun thing to think about because it does look so different depending where you live. And I guess like how, broad your cooking background is and how broad your your recipe arsenal is. Right. And I think, too, that since we're focusing today on inspiration, I think literally weather changes and you don't have to live in a perfect four season climate to get weather changes because I lived in Arizona and definitely had changes in the weather. But a weather change can be a source of inspiration for your menu, even if, like you said, you're not eating all locally or shopping from the local farm simply by the fact that like you wear different clothes, your house is a different temperature. So I think coming back to that idea of inspiration, we need all the little, um, all the little inspiration triggers or like, um, switches that we can get because they inspire us to look for something different. Yeah. Well, we know that feeding a family healthily while also keeping a positive attitude about the time and energy we're putting into our meal planning and cooking can be a lot. So we're really excited to introduce you to the sponsor of this episode, Healthy Eating Research. Yeah, Megan. Well, as we said, we've done a lot of food episodes over the years, and we've touched on several times 
how some of our kids are pickier than others. So as listeners, you all know that new food reluctance is super common in kids. Yeah, but just because we know it's normal doesn't mean we don't still stress about it. And that's why we're so impressed by the new nutrition recommendations from Healthy Eating Research. So instead of just talking about what kids should be eating, they really dig into how we can help our families develop healthy habits around food and mealtime. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Megan Lott, the Deputy Director of Healthy Eating Research. She's a registered dietitian and a mom of three young kids, so she totally gets what it's really like to feed a family. She has some super smart and practical advice for all of us parents to try at home, and I think you're all going to really get a lot out of our conversation. You can follow at Healthy Eating Research on Instagram for great tips on helping your kids eat healthfully, and keep listening to hear from Megan a little later in the show. Yeah, keep listening for that. That's going to be a great conversation. Okay, Sarah, so let's jump into this conversation about food inspiration and where we get it. And I guess I want to start by asking, you know, it's one thing to get inspired when you're a brand new cook. Um, and you just like, you maybe are reading recipes like they're the gospel and like everything is, you know, you're just like going through it line by line, super carefully. But I have found over the years, as I've become a more experienced and more confident cook, that my relationship with food inspiration has changed. So I'm just curious, and you can go first on this one. Do you still follow recipes as closely as maybe you once did? Do you improvise more? Um, how does that look for you? Well, I definitely feel more confident, as you said, with my skills when improvising. I think um, also technology has changed a lot. So it's hard for me to separate um, whether it's the fact that I'm a little bit more of a confident cook or that the the way that we all are exposed to food inspiration is so different than it was, say, 15 years ago when I would have gotten a cookbook for Christmas probably and looked through the recipes and um, of course, maybe still Googled something. But like Pinterest and Instagram, for example, like weren't everywhere. Um, so I would say that it's very ingredient specific for me. I often get inspired by wanting to try a, a specific type of dish or having an ingredient that I'd like to learn how to use. Um, and then that will inform where and how I search for a recipe. And I will still follow a recipe like I'm a rule follower, right? So I, I do love to learn the how you're supposed to, you know, cook a butternut squash, for example, or like I'm going to follow this recipe for a particular type of soup I've never made before. And I'll definitely still stick to a recipe when something is new. Um, but I, like you said, I think I feel more confident if I'm out of something, just making a substitution. I mean, I ask my Google in my kitchen sometimes like, hey, Google, like, what can I substitute for this? And like, she'll have an answer. So, yeah, it has changed over the years. Yeah, I definitely improvise a lot and and much more than I used to um, when I was very insecure about my ability to do literally anything. There was like a lot of obsessing over recipes. I would say now the, re the recipes are more of a jumping off point. I will glance at it, see if I have all the stuff. If I have like, I've gotten better at knowing what I need to have and what's kind yeah. of, um, you know, just sort of like would be nice to have, but not completely necessary. And that's particularly true when it comes to things like spices and seasonings or like swapping out a different cooking oil um, or even like a protein, you know, or, or something that's along the same lines. I'm also one of those people who always has like three jars of cumin, but none of like yeah. something else that I need. And I'm like, how did this even happen? I know for a fact I bought paprika. Did I use it all? Is that possible? So there's always a little bit of that. It's like um, my pantry is a mystery. Yes. Situation that I just kind of go and I'm like, ooh, what do I have? It, it's always different. So I've gotten really good at that. Now, I will say one area where I'm still not super confident improvising is technique. I don't feel like I have great knife skills. I don't feel like I'm great with um, like how temperature and cooking length work together, especially mm -hmm. with it, if it's meat um, and it feels less forgiving. Or like searing, I always feel like I'm second guessing myself when I'm searing. So like I have a few recipes, like braising is really forgiving. It's just low and slow. I can have it go all day. That's fine. Very confident. But if I'm using like dry heat on like a, you know, a chicken or something or a pork tenderloin, or if I'm pan frying or sauteing, if I'm cooking fish, I always feel like I am really like still hyper-focused on the technique and worried the whole time I'm not getting it right. So that's one area where even though I've been cooking all this time, and every meal involves both technique mm -hmm. and flavor. I've gotten really comfortable with the flavor and not as comfortable with the technique. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Yeah. 
I would say the same for me. And maybe that's one place where this, I could lean in more on inspiration and be like, okay, well maybe I should watch a couple of videos of people doing this stuff so I can get it into my head. Right. Cause I know there's just like knowledge you can have like about a piece of fish, for example, if you have that knowledge about the best way to cook a piece of fish, like that knowledge, it doesn't change that much from recipe to recipe, but I've never focused that much on that, on that learning. So that's a good, that's a good way to think about my next level of inspiration, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, so then my next question is, and I'll take this one first, are there certain meals or certain days where we're more likely to experiment? And then like overall, how often are we actively searching for new recipes or ideas versus just going with what we usually do? And, and I'll go first on this one. Um, definitely dinner for me is when I, when I improvise. Like I don't, lunches and breakfasts are mostly pretty predictable around here. I tend to be um, more in the kitchen on Sundays and Mondays. Those tend to be the days where I'm just more domestically inclined. So, you know, that kind of goes along with experimenting. You have to have time and space to do those kinds of things. And I would say I go out of my way to look for new recipes or inspiration about once a month. Um, Honestly, I buy magazines kind of a lot still. And we'll talk about that more like specific inspiration in the second half of the episode. But when... I decide it's time to go buy a few magazines. That's when I think about what food might look like coming up. If, if it's not quite that often, like if it's, you know, it's probably not literally every month, then it tends to be when the seasons are changing. Um, because that's when I usually get inspired to go look for, for new ideas and and new things. How about you? Yeah. Well, longtime listeners know that I have a wonderful partner in the kitchen who cooks at least probably 75% of our dinners. So my husband is actually the dinner cook a lot of the time. I think from a food planning and prep, like if you divided all food related household jobs up, we're probably 50 50. But in the making of dinner, it's like 80 20. And I say that because I'm thinking, oh, gosh, like, do I look for dinner inspiration? Not really. We've we've done an episode recently on how we do our our weekly meal plan. But that's different than looking for like, oh, hey, let's try something new. When we do it, it's usually together. And often it would be because we alternate Sunday dinners with my family. So my parents will host and then we'll host. And um, that's often a time where as long as we have a time on the weekend to think about it, we'll say like, oh, let's do something a little different. Let's do something a little more interesting. And it might start with the protein. And then what haven't we done in a while? And then we might go recipe hunting, just a simple Google search or pulling out some recipe books that we already have or something we remember that we made a long time ago that was so good. So I would say uh, Sunday dinners are a, like a naturally recurring opportunity to get creative. The weeknight stuff tends to be pretty same, same with the stage of life we're in right now. And then in terms of how often I'm looking for inspiration, I, I think of Instagram, honestly, because it's kind of like my preferred social media platform. And I do follow a fair amount of food creators and foodie accounts. And so I feel like I'm constantly getting inspiring input. And then it's just, it's like waiting for the opportunity where like, oh yeah, we do have the time to try that this weekend or whatever it is. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to like frame that because I was thinking that like, I wouldn't have a lot to say about getting inspired by Instagram, but it's because I'm immersed in it. I also follow Mm -hmm. quite a few food accounts and I'm not looking for a recipe when that food account pops up in my feed. But I definitely it's almost like passively taking it in and going, mm, that looks good. And then I don't mm-hmm. think about it. I don't usually click through to the, to the um, recipe. But when it does come time to make a meal plan, I know that's floating around in my head. It's like I'm being subconsciously um, inspired without even really going out of my way to ask for it. Yeah. Sarah, I was going to ask you when you were talking about I think it's just so cozy to think about you and Brian, like flipping through magazines and mm-hmm. cookbooks or whatever and like picking out recipes. Do you ever go to him and say, hey, I'm really in the mood for like Indian food. Can you make something with that flavor profile? Or like, hey, uh, I saw this on Instagram. Would you make it? Or is it more like if you're the one inspired, like you're tagged in? So it's interesting because he is such a um, like whatever he's in the mood for is what he'll cook. And so it's been a point of tension to be like, okay, but can we like have a plan? Like, can we plan to use the proteins that we have and like maybe plan to mix it up? So I think um, I have never gone to him and said, I'm in the mood for this. Can you make it? But I definitely am the one to say like, hey, let's think about what we haven't had in a while. Or let's think if we can do something different than because I do like the variety. And I think 
it's not that he doesn't like variety, but he literally just asks himself, like, what do I feel like making tonight? And then he does that. And that might be same, same for a while, or he might get a wild hair and, and do something really creative. Whereas I want to be intentional about the, the creativity, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Okay, Sarah, one more question. And this one is more about the organizational side of things. So, you know, it's kind of predictable that I won't have a whole lot of great tips to share here. Um, but the question is, how do you save and store recipes? And, and I also think looking back to the way our families of origin did this is always fun and interesting uh, because it was very different back then. And I'll go first on this. Like my growing up, my mom had a recipe tin with little index cards in it. Mm -hmm. I still remember. Um, she got me one of those, like in my early marriage, I think I used it for a few years and then internet happened in my life and I kind of stopped using it. I also had these cookbooks where, and I also have still one of these rattling around where you would write the recipe on an index card and then tuck it into like these sleeves. So it was like a way to have your own recipes in a book, but you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And again, I used those a lot when I was first married and then that kind of got replaced by just more haphazard ways of, of collecting stuff. And so I mean, I'm just not always great about it. So I have like stacks of printouts and ripped out magazine pages. I have zero digital organization. I often will Google and then hope that Google will tell me about the recipe I already used. You know, it'll it'll be like the link Mm -hmm. is a different color or it'll say you last. purple link. (laughs) Yes, the purple link. Or it'll be like you last visited this on whatever date. And I'm like, ooh, that's probably when I made this. But sometimes if you make the mistake of clicking multiple links before you decide which one you want, you can never be sure that that was the one. I have actually Googled my own recipes. Like I have, I have written recipes online before of like things I make all the time. And then I've gone a few years back when I was blogging a lot. Then I went a few years without making like my quiche or like my potato salad or whatever, which is usually like an amalgam of several other people's recipes. But I finally dialed it in the way I really loved it, wrote it down, like blogged it, forgot it. And I go Google myself to find it because I don't have them saved anywhere. So yeah. Sarah, I'm hopeful that you have better actual ideas for how to do this here, but maybe you don't, maybe this isn't important to you. This may be, um, I may crush your hopes a little bit, but I want to first talk about like, yes, the recipe boxes of your, and I think you and I are of an age where when we entered adulthood, the internet was still in its infancy and food internet was not widespread yet. So I think people younger than us would not have started out with a recipe box with dividers for different, you know, sides and appetizers, but I did. And I, you know, that was 20, you know, in college, I remember even before I was married, I remember keeping recipes that way or getting recipes, like having somebody for Christmas, write down a bunch of family recipes and they go in the little box. It was like, It was like 1955, but in 2001, and then very rapidly things evolved. So I actually have a couple recipe boxes and I still have some recipes on cards like that, that I go to because that's where they are. There's also a ton in there that I've literally never made. And it's really funny. It's, it's family or family friend recipes that were written down and given to me and I've never made them. It would be like a, it would be a wild, like, let's just pick one and make it and see what it is because somebody (laughs) took the time to to send that to me or to put it together. Um, then when we were early married, we printed a lot of recipes and we were like kind of food network. That was when like in the real rise of food network. So there was like there, I remember their search functionality was really pretty good at the time. This would have been 2005, six, somewhere in there. Um, and so we were, Brian and I, as a couple were pretty organized, but we just had this three ring binder And we had the protector sheets, like the clear protector sheets. And so we would print out recipes from the internet, but we would actually save them. And sometimes we'd even make notes on them. Sometimes we'd, um, maybe if we were doubling the recipe or making changes, you can see our chicken scratch writing. Sometimes we'd write down, Brian would go to his dad's house and write down a recipe. But instead of it being on an index card, now it was on like an eight and a half by 11, like regular paper. And then those slid into binder protector sheets. And that binder we still use. I always meant to make it look a little nicer, maybe give it some dividers. It's a little overstuffed. There's definitely printouts in there that we made once and never made again, but there are some long time standards in there. So that I would say has become our, like our kind of powers family recipe binder, but it has, it's, it's not in great shape. Like it's not well organized, but we, 
I think if the measure is, does it serve its purpose? Like, do we reach for it when we need to remember something? And we do. We'll flip through and find what we need. Um, so there's that. And then now, like in the now times, I'm pretty much like you. I, I wish I could say I'm better. Um, we just Google stuff. And, you know, I've gotten a lot less discriminating about like, I think going back to what you said about how confident are we that if we don't get the exact recipe, we can at least glance and be like, oh, okay, I could take it from here. And I think because of that confidence, I'm less fixated on finding the exact right recipe. Whereas I used yeah. to be a little bit more discerning about that. Like, I don't want just anything from allrecipes.com. <laughs> How do I know this is good? Right. And I don't feel that way anymore. I just am like, well, just show me something and I'll approximate the rest. And if it makes sense, like you can look at a recipe now, I think, and it, and you'll know if it makes sense or not. Like right. you, you have that, that, that intuition about it because you've got more experience. You look at something, you're like, wait, this cook time makes no sense. Or like, why would they have that ingredient or whatever? So you, your BS meter is already tuned yes. to, to not let lower quality recipes through. I will say it can get tricky if you find a recipe that is amazing and knocks it out of the park. And if you're not careful about saving that, right. then it, then it would matter if you're really trying to find, like we had a pumpkin muffin recipe with this like streusel topping. Oh, this happens a lot with us with baking. Cause my kids bake a lot. And we will just Google something and we'll just try the first thing that comes up. But like there was one pumpkin muffin recipe that was so good. I thought about it all year long. I was like, I can't wait to make those again when it feels seasonally appropriate. And we did find it. But like that was one where I did not want just any pumpkin muffin recipe. Like I really wanted that one because it just was so delicious. Well, maybe our listeners will have some more tips on this because I was just thinking last night, um, Eric and I made cauliflower soup and we're both adamant that there was a better cauliflower soup recipe that we made like a year ago. And that <laughs> since then we've been using this like slightly substandard one, it's still fine. And right. maybe we're also both messing. Maybe we're both improvising too much and screwing up the original. But I feel like the first one we had was amazing. And then we've been like, it's really simple. It's like five ingredients, but we're like, it's just not as good as it was. Like what's going on. And Sarah, your comment about it, like was like, it was like 1955 until it was like 2010. Yes, It's like, yes. Things really didn't change very much for a very long time. Like the basic way that people got shared and stored recipes was very similar decade after decade and then suddenly changed. And I really think for me, when I shifted from those little cards to like internet printouts was when um, the technology got better for blogging recipes and mm -hmm. you could pop them out. Like, you know, it'll say like jump to recipe or yes, print yeah. it like a printer friendly. And yes, all that. Yeah. that back in like the year 2000, let's say, didn't exist. So if you went to a blog and went to go print out, at least it didn't exist for like small websites. I think probably, yeah. you know, a big food website maybe had that, but it, you would print out the entire HTML blog page. Yeah. Sometimes if it wasn't a blog, it was like a website. You would print yeah. everything on that page. So if you're like a 30 year old, you know, mom listening to this right now, wondering how things looked when your mom was doing it in early internet, um, that's probably about how it looked. Like you would print someone's entire website because yeah. you wanted the one recipe or you'd have to do the thing where you like highlight and then right click and only print yeah. the selected text. Yeah. Very, very different in those days. I love it so much. All right. So I'm really excited for everybody to get to know Megan Lott, who I got to chat with for a few minutes. She's a registered dietitian, a mom of three kids. She has eight-year-old twins and a five-year-old. So she is in this with us. She's a working mom and she is deputy director for Healthy Eating Research, our sponsor for this episode. Um, and she's here to talk about these tips for families that are much more about the how of getting our kids to try new foods and be adventurous in their eating much less about the what. And I thought our conversation was so encouraging to me. It definitely made me want to uh, get back in the habit of presenting my kids with some unfamiliar flavors, even as they're getting older. So it was a great conversation. Another really interesting thing about Megan Lott is that she has celiac disease and one of her kids um, has food allergies. So she's really got that perspective of having to make things work for her family in a way that like, you know, minimizes the stress on her is a way of feeding her kids. She feels really good about, um, that they'll actually eat. There's just a lot going on. Every family has their unique needs and their unique, you know, things that make um, dinner time or meal time in general challenging. So I love that she addressed some of that. And she also talks about some of her food inspiration, which was really fun. That was fun. All right, let's dive into my chat with Megan Lott. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad to have you here today. 
We're talking about getting inspired in the kitchen and we're talking about feeding our families healthfully. I think this can be really overwhelming and there are like 10 million different pieces of advice out there. Could you maybe distill down a few goals that you think parents should be working toward when we're trying to raise healthy, independent eaters? Well, the research has really shown us, Sarah, that childhood is a critical period for the development of eating behaviors and habits that last into adulthood. And that it's not just what we feed our kids that matter, but really how we approach eating and feeding that can help set our kids up for healthy habits for life. In reviewing the research on this topic and looking at parenting styles and feeding styles, we found that there are really three key concepts parents should know about, and those are autonomy, structure, and repetition. So when we're talking about autonomy, we're talking about supporting children's independence and learning to accept healthful foods, getting them involved in the process. Mm -hmm. With structure, we're talking about really structuring the food environment to provide children with lots of opportunities to learn about and have positive experiences with healthy foods. So making sure we have lots of healthy options around and limiting the less healthy choices. And then the third one, which I think is the most important, is that it takes time and repetition for kids to develop new healthy habits, including trying and tasting new foods. And the evidence shows that repeated exposure, it can take up to 15 tries before a kid knows if they like a new food or not. And so what I'm hearing you say is that it's so much more about almost family culture and behavior around feeding than maybe the specific protein grams or like this specific leafy green, but almost more as parents um, getting aware of our own behaviors and how we create family culture around eating. Definitely. I mean, the what is still really important, but I think if you're offering variety of healthy options, you're offering fruits and vegetables, proteins, and dairy, et cetera. Um, it's really, you know, that how we approach mealtimes and how we interact with our kids around foods is also just as important. Well, then let's drill down into maybe some specific habits families can start trying at home right now. Yeah. So, you know, I like to start with structure because if you think about when the environment you have, what's in your kitchen, what are the choices your kids have access to really sets the stage. And so, you know, a couple of tips that I think are really great ones are to always start snack and mealtime by offering water and healthy food first. Mm. That doesn't mean you can't give the other items. um, But if you're, for example, giving an apple and goldfish crackers, start with the water and apple and then have the goldfish crackers come second. Those aren't unhealthy, but the apple's definitely the healthier of the two items. Um, You know, along those lines, keeping healthy choices like fresh fruit on the counter or cut vegetables in the fridge like carrot sticks or sliced peppers and hummus or dips that your kids really like where they can reach them and grab them on their own are really helpful. And similarly, having those healthy snacks portioned into individual serving sizes at kids' eye level in the pantry where they can grab and know that these are okay snacks are super helpful. I love this because I know as a mom, sometimes I get discouraged. I will talk myself out of doing what you're saying because I've already started like, well, they're not going to eat it. This bowl of cucumbers is going to go to waste. I'll just put out the crackers because I know X, Y, Z. And so what you're reminding me is that repeated exposure and almost just we don't have to say it. We don't have to say eat the cucumbers first and then I'll put out the crackers. It can be a silent, it can be like a show not tell situation where it just happens that those fresh fruits and veggies appear magically in, you know, finger food size pieces. And then, oh, a few minutes later, the rest comes out. So I think that's super actionable and something moms can start doing without, you know, without it being majorly disruptive to snack time. Totally. And, you know, the other thing is if snack time is, your kid's favorite time, and you know it's going to take more work to shift to the healthier items then, think about how you can incorporate some of these same things at mealtime. So for example, you know, the 5.30 to 6 o'clock window in my house is a nightmare. (laughs) Every day, my kids are starving. I'm struggling to get dinner on the table after working all day. Um, You know, ideally they want it at 5.45, but realistically it's coming at 6.15. So while we're finishing dinner, I take out the raw veggies and hummus, or I have sort of another healthy appetizer, as you will, (laughs) ready Mm -hmm. to give them. And then they can snack on things I feel great about while I'm finishing dinner. And you know what, if they don't eat the vegetables I serve as dinner, I don't care as much because they've already just eaten all these, you know, as their before meal snack or appetizer. 
Well, let's talk about trying new foods because this is something I think we've heard a million times as parents. And it's still, even if you've read the articles and everything, it can be discouraging. So how can we undiscourage ourselves and encourage kids to try new foods? Well, you know, 15 tries can sound really discouraging, especially (laughs) if your child hates broccoli, for example. The idea of doing it 15 times is like, oh, I don't want to go into that battle. But I will say one try is one bite. It's just that simple. It doesn't have to be a whole serving. And it can happen over weeks. It can happen um, with different preparations of the food. So if they don't like raw broccoli, try roasted broccoli or steamed broccoli or try serving it with a sprinkle of cheese on top or another well-liked flavor or dip. That will go a long way to getting them to be willing to try it. And another thing, this is where getting kids involved is so important. So the research has really shown if you involve the kids in preparation of the item or selection of the item, it goes a long way in their willingness to try it. And even the youngest can help with washing and sorting fruits and veggies or thinking about, you know, on the weekend when you're planning your meals for the week, engaging your kids and saying, what do you want to have for dinner this week? Or what new item do we want to try as a family? And that role modeling, then seeing you try it as a parent or an older sibling try it, makes them more willing to do the same. Something that's been really helpful in my family is we get a farm box from a local farm and we don't always know what's coming in it. Actually, I get a little email telling me, but I I don't have control over it. And sometimes there are really crazy or interesting fruits and vegetables in there grown locally. And I think my kids have seen us be as adults be like, oh, hmm never had this before. Don't know what to do with it. Let's look up a recipe. Let's let's cut it open and see what it looks like inside. So I think if I'm putting myself in a kid's shoes, like all vegetables are like that. All, all new foods are like that because they just haven't had as much experience. So I love that. Yeah. And I think along those lines, we often think about measuring success and getting the kid to try the first bite. But there are a lot of really important steps that you just hit on before getting to that first bite. So for example, having them just even touch it, feel it, talk about what it smells like, what it feels like, cutting it open and looking at it, kind of exploring with the other senses can be really effective, especially for kids that are really resistant. Um, Maybe they're a little scared of trying new foods, or maybe they've had some really bad experiences in the past and they need a little more to get there. For those kids, even getting to the stage of letting you put one bite's worth on their plate is a huge win. And I think often enough, we don't celebrate the wins enough. And those are really important ones. Well, what have you seen as some of the more common stressors around feeding kids? And then what are some strategies that we can think about as we move forward? Well, I think as parents, one of the first things when you think about bringing home your new baby from the hospital from day one, you're told that your goal is to feed your baby and make sure they're eating enough. And Really, as a dietitian, we're looking at not how much they're eating in one meal. We're looking at their pattern over the full day, sometimes over multiple days, and they're going to be okay if they don't eat their veggies at one meal. They're going to be okay if they don't eat a lot at one meal. It's kind of re-shifting your mindset, getting comfortable with that, and knowing that if you keep offering the healthy choices and you keep serving the meals over the course of a week, they're going to be getting what they need to be getting. And that's where the pediatrician comes in. They'll flag for you if you have an issue to be concerned about. Yeah, you're so right, Megan, that we start out with this sort of like larger than life pressure to keep a tiny human alive. And as they gain independence, it's kind of our job to get out of the way at certain points or to let go of some of that control. And that I think is one of the hardest things about parenting. Um, So I can see that being a primary stressor. Anything else you wanted to mention? Yeah. You know, the other thing that comes up a lot in, in conversations with parents is we're all operating unlimited time and budgets. And so thinking about with the idea of getting your kids involved, for example, it doesn't have to happen on a busy weeknight. That Those are the kinds of things in our yeah. house we really save for weekends. So really think about this in a way that works with your family's lifestyle and what time you have available. And then with budgets, we have lots of tips on our website at healthyeatingresearch.org about how to eat healthy on a budget. And 
There's also a lot of great resources out there in general. You know, myplate.gov has some great ideas and and resources for shopping on a budget. There are ways to do it, but those I think are some of the biggest challenges we hear from most families. Right. Well, before we wrap up um, this episode, we are talking about getting inspired, getting re-inspired as moms, as meal preparers and meal creators. Um, So I would just love to know you personally, where do you get your cooking inspiration? Is it like cookbooks or Instagram? What what's going on in your kitchen lately? And where do you find inspiration? I would say I go most frequently to Pinterest. I just Mm -hmm. love being able to put in one ingredient search and coming up with tons of ideas. But I also have found during COVID, I've really started following the New York Times food section just because they have so many great recipes. And at first I was a bit intimidated thinking, oh, these are going to be really complicated or need really expensive ingredients. And I have found that that's not the case for most of them. So a lot of times I'm using these recipes as inspiration, but really making them my own and, and adapting them to meet our family's needs. And I love the ones, especially that are like you can put out ingredients and everyone gets to make their own, whether it's make your own pizza or like make your own rice bowl or make your own salad. And those are some of my kids' favorites too, because they have total control over what goes on it. I agree. I think if we can iterate that four out of seven nights a week, like a different cuisine or different flavor profile, it is a lot of that can be prepped ahead as well. A lot of it can be done really affordably. So I will co-sign that. Well, Megan, this was really helpful, um, really fun to chat with you today. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Any um, any first step that you would encourage moms listening to take? I think the most important thing is just don't give up because there, there are nights where it's okay to give up. But when thinking about the long run, it's definitely yeah. a marathon, not a sprint. There are nights I've thrown the towel in myself and said, forget it. Just eat whatever you want. I'm too tired to fight tonight. Yeah. But... Over time, if you keep persevering and you keep offering the healthy options, you're going to see those shifts in patterns. But it really is about just time and patience and trying to keep the conversations around mealtime as fun and, and, and you know, unstressful as possible. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with Megan. That was such a great conversation. And I think it was probably really helpful to all the listeners, definitely for me. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the nitty gritty of the of where we're getting this inspiration. So we started kind of talking a little more generically, a little more generally about how we get inspired um, to cook and what we get inspired to cook. But we're just going to bang through some of the different sources of inspiration that we may or may not actually lean on um, because not everybody uses all the same resources. So Let's start with magazines or newspapers. I'll go first on this one. Like, believe it or not, I still sit down about once a month and tear out recipes when I buy magazines. Um, And I use them mostly as inspiration. I'm not like cooking every recipe. Sometimes I just cook, like tear the picture out. And you know how some magazines, like the picture is in a different spot from the actual Mm -hmm. recipe or like half the recipes on the back of the picture and the rest is continued somewhere else. Sometimes I don't even bother rubbing them out. Um, Often you can find those same recipes online anyway. So like if I got some, if I tore something out of Better Homes and Gardens and I only tore out the picture just to remind me later I want to make that, there's a pretty good chance I can find that exact recipe online because they publish in both places. So it's really more for me just to have a visual. And honestly, it sounds like it is. It's a total ritual. Like I will pour a cup of tea or a glass of wine. I sit at the kitchen island. I leaf through the magazine. I read the content. And then when I see something pretty, I rip it out. And that's just something that I love to do. I have to mention that my sister was watching me do that not too long ago. And she was like, do you remember our mom doing that? And I totally don't. Like I had forgotten it, but I guess I just internalized that that was something that she did. And and like looking back, I kind of remember her having those like binders with the sleeves with Mm -hmm. some magazine um, rips, like tear outs in them. I just, I don't remember the ripping out part, but she must have also had the same ritual, but it feels very homey to me. Like about, you know, like I said, about once a month, I get this itch to just go buy a couple home magazines and just spend some time flipping through them. And, you know, I don't often make the projects. I don't, I just like to look, it's aspirational. It is not, it's even like a step above inspiration. Um, My boyfriend, Eric also eats low carb and I've actually had a lot of fun looking through magazines, pulling a recipe out and saying like, okay, how can I take this Martha Stewart living recipe and turn it into something keto friendly. And that's actually been like a fun challenge for me because there's like a whole different ingredient list when you're dealing with that, like different flours 
and sweeteners and all kinds of things. And so like, that's been another kind of fun challenge, but it really, for me, starts with the magazine. How about you? Do you still, you still do that at all? You know, not like you at all. I love listening to you talk about that because it does sound so cozy and such like a, a way to make a physical tactile experience out of that like recipe searching. The times that I do this are totally seasonal. I The last few years, I have gotten a lot of enjoyment out of buying those expensive newsstand like holiday or holiday meal themed magazines. Like the $15 ones? <laughs> yes, like the one off. Yes. And um, yeah. I, I will have them around the house and the kids really like to look at them. Um, I actually did that when I was coming home from Chicago in October, even though it was early in the season, I was picking up little airport gifts for the kids. And Mm. for my 13 year old, there's just not as much that she wants. And I thought she would love a holiday baking and a holiday crafting, like nice. I think they were good housekeeping, but they're like the really nice, glossy, like pricier one time in the season only. Um, And those are still, they're out every day and the kids are looking at the holiday baking and the holiday cooking. So I would say it's very seasonal for me. It tends to be like a little splurge on one of those magazines. that's almost like a cookbook in and of itself, but then I don't tear out because the whole thing is usually more, it's almost like a glossy cookbook. I mean, that's kind of what they're meant for. And I have done that the last few years and we'll also save them year to year. So that almost just sits on the shelf with our cookbooks. Um, So in terms of tearing out, I'm going to say no. I do not currently yeah. tear out recipes of anything. But you still like magazines. I do. Not as much as you. I feel like those feel like little mini cookbooks. And I occasionally buy those and use those differently because they're they're more condensed. Like they're more specific mm-hmm. to that season or that, you know, whatever it is, that like specialty. So like they they live on their own. They're like a like a one and done. Like they're yeah. a, a, like a caps encapsulated thing. Well, what about social media or Pinterest? We already kind of talked about the accidental um, inspiration, the, the passive inspiration that happens with like Instagram, but what about Pinterest or what about even using Instagram in a more methodical way? How does that look for you? Well, I do. I, so I'll start with Instagram, um, and then say a little bit about Pinterest, but I do use the save feature in Instagram, which is my version of Pinterest. Cause I'm not a Pinterest user, but if you click the little save in the bottom right corner, as of now, Instagram always loves to change things. Um, a little thing will pop up that says save to a collection and you can, you can have different collections based on different things. And so I've definitely had recipe, like a recipe board. It's like a Pinterest board, but it's in your Instagram saves. And then this is nerdy, but won't surprise you in my weekly to do like in my weekly tasks that automatically pop up. I have a reminder on Saturdays to look at my Instagram saves because one thing that'll happen is I will save something and then never go look at it again because I'm in that social media scrolling headspace when I save it. What is ever going to prompt me to remember that I saved, you know, like a really good yummy salad recipe? Like I'm never going to remember that, but it's part of my weekly recurring tasks to just go in and be like, oh, what did I save this week? And I can, I can see it all. Sometimes it's, it's not always food related, but if I have a collection that is for food, then that might then inspire me to put that on the meal plan. So it's all kind of linked together. And I do think that like you said, the, the constant exposure to yummy food on Instagram is a nice side benefit, but it's not the thing that's going to get me to like, get out of my comfort zone and try a new recipe. There has to be a little bit more of a trigger for that to occur. So that's how I've done it. I mean, Pinterest is so lovely for those who use it and love it. And I know we have listeners listening who are like, hello guys, you can have a whole Pinterest board for recipes you want to try and recipes you have tried and recipe fails and, you know, Thanksgiving 2021. And it does appeal to my organizational brain. It appeals to my um, desire to like categorize things and, and create a system. I just don't care for Pinterest. I don't care to be on there. And mm-hmm. I have had trouble historically with like the pictures are pretty. So you can pin things for visual inspiration <laughs> But like yep. then the link won't work or the link goes yep. to someone's crappy blog from 2011. So yeah. um, I know, I mean, I know half of you are yelling at your speakers right now because I get that it works for a lot of people, but it's not for me. Um, so everything you just said about Pinterest, I, I <laughs> like many people, I went through a Pinterest recipe kick in like 2012, maybe 2011, like back, back when it was really getting off the ground. What I started to notice was happening was that I was in this eternal loop where I kept getting the same visuals. And I know this has probably changed as Pinterest has grown, but I felt like I hit the end of Pinterest almost like, like I was just getting fed the same stuff over and over. And then like you said, you'd click it and it's old because it, once it's in the system, 
it lives forever. Like people just keep pinning it over and over. And so, yeah, you'd end up in like this really dated website that now there's a million pop-ups on that like the, the, um, the experience control was really difficult because the picture is beautiful, but what you're going to get when you click the picture is like a mystery, at least the last time I used it. And I will be honest that I have not used Pinterest with any regularity. I logged in like a few days ago and my last activity on there, like where I pinned something was seven years ago. So yeah, it's been a bit, been a minute. Um, so I don't know that that's the case anymore, but I just, I found it frustrating. And then again, like that pretty picture, you might try the recipe and it might be terrible and you don't have the quality control. Just ask Clara, who I made a rainbow cake in a jar that I found. I could oh, only I find this story, recipe yeah. on Pinterest. And she has asked me several, like she asked me that night, she was four years old. She asked me never to make that again. And then asked me every year for several years, please, mom, don't ever make me those rainbow cakes in a jar again. And then still brings it up. So it's like, I just, (laughs) I could never get past it. Okay. Well, let's talk about something a little more old, old school and that's cookbooks. Um, I know that the way people relate to cookbooks has probably changed, but they still really serve a purpose. So do you have any favorites? I will say Sarah, that I got the joy of cooking when I got married. I still use it every now and then. I don't rely on it nearly as much as I used to, but it's like a security blanket that I have in my kitchen. I just know that if I need a solid recipe, it's in there. And then I do have a few like inspiring cookbooks that have beautiful photos. Sometimes I just flip through. I just don't cook out of them that much anymore. How about you? Well, my equivalent to that would be the America's Test Kitchen family cookbook. It's the red one. America's Test Kitchen has a lot, but this is the one that's binder style, similar to Joy of Cooking or The Better Homes, like the old school ones. It's just kind of like a modern take on that. You can you can learn how to do anything in there. And I've always loved America's Test Kitchen because I love their how to's and the almost the why behind the how to. We've given that as gifts. Um, so that is kind of like the go to main one that we have. We have a lot of cookbooks, Megan, that we don't look at regularly. And I'm realizing recording this episode that like Part of it is the way we get inspired versus the way we actually cook. There's like a, a a missing link a little bit. But I will mention a couple other things. There is a cookbook called Salad, like salad with an E on the end. And then there's a second one. And then they have like, okay, so I'm looking at it right now. It's Pascal Beal is the cookbook author. And there are like, there are spinoffs. The ones we have are the Salad. And then I think there's like a second one, like Salad 2. And these are beautiful cookbooks and kind of salad and veggie focused. And if you ever wanted to make an interesting salad, like where the salad is sort of the star. A nice big salad. A nice big salad. <laughs> Trademark nice yep. big salad. Um, and then just shout out to our podcast friends at the Girl Next Door podcast because they talk a lot about cooking. And they did an episode last year that I loved where the whole episode was about their favorite cookbooks. And so that was, I just loved listening to people talk about their favorite cookbooks because I don't identify as a cookbook lover. And the way they talked about it was seriously like, like the way you talk about your favorite novel or something. So I'll link that up because if you do want cookbook inspiration, Kelsey and Erica mentioned, I don't know, a dozen really good cookbooks. I would actually love to get more back into cookbooks because I just, I, I like looking at them. I find them very inspiring and I've just gotten Mm -hmm. out of the habit. Well, what about websites or blogs? I mean, that can be like a kind of another offshoot of a magazine or a cookbook. You know, you're, you're kind of getting into someone's life maybe, or like there's, it has like its own feeling. What, what about you? Do you use what, do you lean on websites or blogs very much? Probably not in the, in the way you're asking, but the New York times cooking section, which Megan Lott mentioned in our conversation as well. Um, I will file that under a website or blog, I guess, because it's, it's the department of the New York times that does cooking and food. But they also have an app that's really, really fun to use and fun to like search ingredients and save recipes. So the New York Times cooking app, which is subscription, but sometimes it comes with your New York Times subscription. So you can look into that. Um, We have paid for it and gotten a lot out of it. Um, Like I said, back in the day, I was like a big food network. Or remember, it was foodtv.com, I think even was the URL, but it was the website for the food network. Um, and you know, I was pretty into like Ina Garden and, um, Giada De Laurentiis and like, we, we had our people that we kind of followed through food network. Now I'm not sure what the, like what the 2021 version of that would be for me, but 
podcasts are how I get a lot of my information. Our friends at Didn't I Just Feed You, Stacey and Megan, I follow them both personally on Instagram and they're So now I'm back at Instagram again, but just yeah. because they are they are bloggers and online recipe creators. And often it's the Instagrammers that I follow where I'm like, oh, I actually want to go check out that person's recipe blog because but it's because I've seen it on the socials. So now yeah. it's, we're just it's just a loop, I guess. Well, I was just going to say it's so interesting because I was going to, you know, but I, I follow like I don't follow all recipes like I'll check in with all recipes dot com or whatever or like a recipe blog for a really specific dietary need, like a keto recipes or like dairy free if I'm cooking that way for somebody. But when we're talking about like following like a, like a food personality or like a, right. like a specific expert, um, it does like my next question was going to be about food TV, but you're right that like I'm introduced to the chefs or personalities on TV or say the personalities on Instagram or whatever but then I go look up their recipe wherever it is, which could right. be online. It could be in their cook. Like it's all over the place. And so um, I, I really have gotten into like Food Network in the past. I haven't watched. I have not probably consumed a new episode of a Food Network show in like two years, but I still know all those names. I still know Alton Brown is great for like certain kinds of recipes. And it also depends what I'm looking for. Like, am I really wanting to experiment or do I just want to like make a pot roast? And side mm -hmm. note, Somebody in our Facebook group recently asked me for my pot roast recipe and I meant to sit down and respond, but I really couldn't think how, because like at this point, it's kind of like a little bit of Reed Drummond, a little mm -hmm. bit of Paula Dean, a little bit of Alton Brown, and then a lot Megan Francis, because over the years, I just improvised based on whatever was in front of me. And then now it is what it is. And it's not really any one of those things. So maybe at some point you can like inspire yourself even. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it, it is cool to think about how recipes evolve over time. And I know we're going to touch on like family recipes, but I would, I would argue that even Alton Brown and Reed Drummond, like they want their food out there making people happy and working its way into people's family cultures. So unless like, unless we're talking about some chef at some restaurant whose thing is done in exact way, I actually think that's kind of cool that yeah. the inspiration is just the inspiration. And then it kind of becomes the way it works in our family. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. I don't watch food TV at all, really. And that's not true. Like Brian and I watch Top Chef and we watch some food related, like I, we love like food documentaries and stuff. Like yeah. we loved Stanley Tucci's looking, searching for Italy and Padma Lakshmi had a really cool food. So I would say like, we like food culture TV. I do not get recipe inspiration from TV. I mostly just get hungry. You just want to eat. <laughs> yes. I, and I'm like, I want to eat that. I don't want, even want to make that. I just want right. to go there and eat that. Okay. So this is a great segue because we're talking about now like that, that chef, like that celebrity chef, or maybe even a local celebrity chef. I wonder, Sarah, if you get any inspiration from dining out and I'll go first on this and say, sometimes question mark, like <laughs> I, I have to say during the pandemic, I ate out very little. And then when I started going out to eat again, it was a very different experience. Like, you know, menus are limited. The food got more expensive. I was out of my element. I wasn't used to doing it. And I have kind of found myself more picky about restaurant food and a little more disappointed with it. And I don't know if that's just all of the things I just mentioned, or if like quality is slipping because the restaurant industry is having a hard time. I really don't know. And this is not to like slam the restaurant industry. I support it with my dollars a lot, but I will say it just got me really thinking about what do I, when I go to a restaurant, like what am I looking for that excites me and what do I not care about? And I, I narrowed it down to two things, sauces and salads. Hmm. So the two things that get me really excited, what makes a restaurant meal worth it for me and like exciting and inspiring is if they made a basic food with some amazing sauce. And by sauce, I mean, I could be talking about a chutney or like right. a salsa or yeah. something like that, a verde sauce, something like that. But it could also be a cream sauce. It could be like a lemon sauce. Like to me, that's something I have not as a cook mastered or like even really thought to try that hard at. And it makes a big difference. If you make something with a really great sauce, it makes almost anything. It like elevates almost anything. And they're not typically that hard to make. So it has inspired me in general. It's not like I go home from the restaurant and think, I'm going to make that exact meal. But I just think, how could I be more mindful about, you know, incorporating sauces into meals at home? And then um, salads, you know, we've talked about salads a lot and how a salad at the restaurant always tastes better than salad yeah. at home. But if I really, if I go out of my way to buy the same stuff they use at the restaurant, if I make my own dressings, mm -hmm. 
like you really can make a really good salad at home. It's just that I don't typically have all the stuff or like, I don't want to take the extra three minutes to make the dressing. And so those are two places I'm just trying to let myself get inspired, which means I order a little bit differently in restaurants now because I'm, I'm almost ordering with those two things in mind, like to try Mm. those two things. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I feel very inspired when I go to restaurants to go to more restaurants. (laughs) Like I love (laughs) I love dining out. I love the experience of it. I love the food, but I also love the service experience. And it's been a real joy of moving back to my hometown that has a lot more independently owned restaurants at different price points. Um, and, and I've talked a little bit about that on other episodes. So I get extreme joy in dining out. There have been a few times where we've eaten something out and especially it's often Brian and I together where we're like, Ooh, this, like we could do this. Like we could, we could, emulate this or like do a nod to this at home. Um, but I would say that's few, few and far between. So I think dining out serves to get, to keep me excited about food and flavors. Um, maybe it should and could work its way into the home menu planning a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that you are also in an area where you probably just have a lot more options than I do. Um, as far as like locally, because when I go into a different city, I get excited too. And it's not necessarily that the food's better. It's just different. And when you yeah. live in a small town where it's like, you keep going to the same places. I do find that even going like 10 minutes out of my way around here, though, does open up other options and gets me excited again. Can I tell you a quick fact that yeah. um, I have no idea if it's true? Yeah. <laughs> I love maybe true facts. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, this is like one of those, like, this is like um, a hearsay thing. I heard one time that Santa Barbara, the town where I live, has more restaurants per capita than anywhere in the country besides New York City. So it's like New York City and then Santa Barbara in terms of number of restaurants per capita, per number of people who live here. And I have no independent verification of that. But I've always said that we have a ton of restaurants. And we're a very touristy place and there's a lot of people passing through and all that. But we do have a ton of restaurants and most of them are not chains. So that we have a ton, a ton of independently owned restaurants, which is very, very cool. And no idea if that statistic is true. Well, now everyone will go right to their Google machine and find out, right? All right. One more question for us both, Sarah. And that is just how old family recipes play into our food inspiration. You want to go first on this one? Sure. And I think I'll kind of end where we began, which is holidays and seasonal transitions can often sort of remind me of a way that I ate growing up or maybe a way that we ate at the grandparents for Christmas. So I think it, when it comes to big holidays, absolutely old family recipes are part of how I think about what that feeling of that holiday is. Um, I don't, I think in the everyday feeding of my family, there are probably ways that food culture and history shows up that I don't even, that I'm not even aware of. Like the way that you said you tear magazines out of, or tear recipes out of magazines, the way your mom did. And I'm sure that there are little things that I do that are because my mom did them and my grandma did them. But I think that's kind of where it stops. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that while there's a small number of recipes that like I literally want to make that exact recipe, like my stepmom has a banana bread recipe. It's a Betty Crocker one, but there's lots of Betty Crocker banana bread recipes. And I always forget which is the one and have to go back to her and have her share the exact one out of this one (laughs) out of this one cookbook Um, that, that does exist. But mostly... I feel like the way I ate growing up very much influences the way I cook and feed my family now, but it's less about the recipes and more about the kinds of food. And like, so I really like to bake a chicken. I like to make a pot roast. I love to like those kind of comfort foods that are very Midwestern-y and just the way I prepare and serve them, I think are like influenced by the way I ate growing up or the way I remember, you know, my grandma or my mom cooking, but like I don't use their recipes for the most part because I, I just don't see that big of a difference between like my mom's meatloaf recipe right. and the recipe, the meatloaf recipes I have found readily available online. So I think if there was something really like if we had a, um, like a really strong, like ethnic culture that I was like trying to replicate in our home and I wanted to only make that like true Irish version of something or the true Finnish version of something that would be very different than what I'm doing, which is basically just making kind of mid-century Americanized classics over and over. And some of those classics were the recipe that was printed on like the back of the can of cream of mushrooms. Yes. Like absolutely in friends where Phoebe's grandmother is the Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookie recipe. And she thinks it's like a famous, you know, like because in that mid-century food culture, a lot of it was 
what's printed on the package that you add the fried onions or yeah. whatever. So it, it yep. ended up all being the same. And that's not to take away from your mom and your grandma's cooking. But I think for a lot of Midwest, mid-century American families, that's what it was. Yeah. And I had to fix those pork chops because they used to cook those. They were like basically dust. So yeah. there's been some improvements we've made in the last yeah. in the last few decades. Well, this has been so fun. Like, I'm really glad we dove into all this. I was surprised by a few of your answers um, right. and not so surprised by others. And I definitely feel inspired to go to go like leaf through some magazines and get ready for some cozy cooking coming up. Yeah. We want to thank Healthy Eating Research for sponsoring this episode and Megan Lott for speaking with Sarah today. As a reminder, Healthy Eating Research has research-based recommendations for creating healthy eating habits for our kids. Just go to healthyeatingresearch.org and you can find more than 30 strategies and resources like tip sheets in both English and Spanish, answers to your most common feeding challenges, videos, and graphics. Yeah. And remember to follow at Healthy Eating Research on Instagram for some really great tips on encouraging kids to try new foods, creating meal routines, and getting kids involved with you in the kitchen. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back with you on Sunday this weekend for a More Than Mom episode, and we'll talk to you then. Hi everyone, Megan here. Sarah and I would absolutely love it if you would hit pause right now, like right where you're listening, and leave the Mom Hour a rating and review. If our show has helped you feel a little more confident as a mom or a little less alone, this is one of the biggest ways you can thank us, and it really only takes about 30 seconds. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Mom Hour's show listing. So when you're in the episode you're listening to right now, click where it says the Mom Hour just above the play button and then scroll all the way to the bottom and you will see the ratings and reviews. We would love if you would leave us one as well. Thank you so much for listening. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Teas Made. I launched back in November and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. Well, you know, I am fan number one of the teas made. It's got such a cozy vibe and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines and home and family life. Just look for the teas made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.